Ready to re-examine your assumptions and expand your inventory of ideas? More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Pleased to have you join us today in this uh, early part of our program. It's going to be a great three-hour show today, and we are starting uh, uh, in this hour with uh, Dr. Michael Lomax, who is the president and CEO of the UNCF, the United Negro College Fund. Hard to believe this entity has been around now for 80 years. He's here in L.A. for a number of things. We'll talk about that as we move through the hour. But I want to start again in celebration of 80 years of this grand organization, making sure that brothers and sisters across the country um, get a chance uh, at a higher education. So, uh, first of all, Michael Lomax, it is good to see you. It has been too long, my friend. <laughs> well, it's good to it's good for you to see me and, and not to view me. Not you to know? view you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, better to be seen than to be viewed. Yeah, huh? You got that. You been well, though? I am doing well. Yeah. And, you know, 80-year anniversary is something to – to celebrate, I will just say I was not there for the founding. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I did know I did know founders, yeah. and um, this this organization is not just doing okay. Yeah, we're killing it. I saw that and, big yeah, and, and and we have re, you know we've kept that brand energized because the work is is so strong today. We're helping more young mm-hmm. kids get a college degree, and we're strengthening black colleges. I hope we're going to talk about that today. We will, we will talk about it. Uh, I want to get your take on Jesse Jackson 40 years ago. I know you were at that convention as a delegate, so let me do that just in a quick second. Okay. But you said the organization is not just doing okay, you're doing quite well. We all saw that big announcement a few days ago. Yeah. $100 million? Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> hold, hold on, hold on. we got, we got to pause on that. Yeah, are- $100 million dollar donation yes from the lily endowment which is the second largest foundation (laughs) in america today yeah and and you know what lily in indianapolis indiana Mm -hmm. has my my hometown has been supporting uncf for 80 years and this was the largest gift and it's a it's a forward-looking gift because what this gift is going to enable us to do uh because we got to choose how we would use the hundred million dollars and we're going to use it to strengthen the endowments of historically black colleges. And I hope we'll talk about why yeah. we need to build endowments and institutional wealth building in the black community. Because we talk a lot about making individuals rich. Yeah. We talk a lot about black businesses, but we don't talk about the institutions in our community and making sure that they have the wealth to do the job as well. Yeah. In a moment where <clears throat> people are becoming more and more nativist, mm-hmm. in a moment where... Um, in the most multicultural, multiracial, multi-ethnic America ever, there are still racial divisions mm-hmm. that are being plowed every day by people like Donald Trump and beyond. Mm-hmm. How do I process the fact that the good white folk, I'm from Indiana, so I can say yeah. this, <laughs> that the good white folk at Lilly, for whatever reasons, have been supporting this institution aimed at helping black people, Negroes back in the day, colored yeah. folk back in the day, they've been doing it for 80 years. What, what, how, how do I read that? Well, I think you read it as... Uh First of all, recognition that we didn't get here by ourselves. Mm-hmm. We've had a lot of allies and supporters, and sometimes we forget that. Mm-hmm. And Lilly Endowment has been one of them in the Midwest, in Indianapolis, wealth built from uh, the the great wealth of Eli Lilly and family that mm-hmm. created the, the pharmaceutical company. Uh, but I think that that today this reminds me that Although there are these nativists and group, mm-hmm. you know, we're all allies at some point. We're all under one flag. It's one nation. And I actually think that the 40th anniversary of Jesse Jackson's 
bid for president of the United States. Now, I was at San Francisco 40 mm -hmm. years ago when mm -hmm. he gave that speech. Mm-hmm. And if you will remember, and I was a delegate, mm -hmm. and if you will remember uh, who got the uh, Mondale and Ferraro, mm -hmm. 40 years later, there is a white president and a black woman, a black, a Blasian, mm -hmm. a black Asian mm -hmm. woman is the vice president of the United States. And I know it's easy to say, you know, we haven't made progress, we haven't come very far. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. But 40 years ago, I did not think there would be a black woman a heartbeat away from the presidency. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about, well, they, they're not doing it. We have a black woman, the number two elected official in America, the world's largest democracy. And, you know, I saw uh, Reverend Jackson out in Indianapolis this weekend, and he's having some real health problems. Parkinson's, yeah. But I will say this. He is such a hero mm -hmm. for democracy in this nation yeah. because he challenged that, you know, that notion of who could be president. And guess what? We've had a black president. We have yeah. a black woman as vice president. <clears throat> the world is different. Yep, it is different, and uh, we would talk about this in hour two with his son, uh, former Congressman Jesse Jackson Jr. and James Zogby, who was our, uh, on the campaign uh, team with Reverend. Um, but and who and was his uh, pollster? That's right, Zogby. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I always find it worth repeating, and uh, if you listen to second hour, I can tell you now, you're gonna hear it again because Jesse Jr. and I are gonna unpack mm -hmm. this thing for you. But you mentioned that black president, and for those who understand politics and uh, who are really uh, attuned to this. They will acknowledge and recognize, although many have not, that there is no Barack Obama without Jesse Jackson. Mm -hmm. And not just because Jesse was there first, but because of what Jesse did, as you'll recall, after that convention to force a change in the rules. Right. Uh, before Jesse Jackson runs in 84 and 88, for those who weren't around then or don't recall this, let me just draw a line for you uh, between uh, from Jesse to Barack. Um, when Jesse runs in 84 and 88, uh, there is um, a process in the DNC, winner take all. Mm hmm so whoever comes in first place, uh, no matter how many other folk were running, um, if you win California, you win Georgia, you win any state, if you come in first place, you take all the delegates. There was no proportional delegate taking back then. Jesse ran a pretty strong campaign in 84, an even stronger campaign in 88. Uh, and he and Ron Brown, the first African-American to be the head of the DNC, died tragically in a plane crash as uh, Secretary of Commerce during the uh, Clinton era. Uh, Ron becomes the national chairman. Jesse and them make that happen. And then they force these rule changes. And the rule changes uh, uh, go from winner take all to proportional um, delegate taking. So that you take what you win. You take what you earn. Mm -hmm. If Jesse had not forced that rule change in the 80s when he ran, Barack Obama would have lost to Hillary Clinton and would never have been the nominee if Jesse had not forced that change. Because Hillary won in enough places. Uh, that if it had been winner take all, Barack would have been way behind yeah. in the delegate count. So Barack only becomes the nominee because all those years early, earlier, Jesse had forced a rule change that allowed, as I said, proportional delegate taking, and you end up with your first African American president. What's my point? My point is that my point is Dr. Michael Lomax's point that we are all part of a continuum, and each one of us has to do our part to get our paragraph right in the story that we are telling. But I think Jesse doesn't get enough credit for all that he has done, but particularly for paving the road and forcing the rule change. And if he had had if he hadn't run successfully enough in '84 and '88, he wouldn't have had the power to force those rule changes inside the DNC. Say nothing of the fact that in 84 and 88, Jesse had what respectfully Barack Obama did not have, not hating on Barack. 
Barack, just telling the truth, Barack never had coattails. You cannot point to a list of black people all across the country who were elected because of Barack Hussein Obama. Jesse in 84 and 80, man, there were so many black folks that got elected all across the country on Jesse's coattails that we celebrate and revere and honor today. But I just don't think that Jesse gets the respect that he deserves. Your thoughts, Michael Lomax? Well, I think that uh, if we don't write our own history, somebody's going to write it for us. That's right. And... Uh, you know, coming here to Crenshaw in Los Angeles in 2024 and remembering what Crenshaw in Los Angeles was like in 1954 when I was a kid growing up up here. here, Uh, And then thinking about all of the giants who made this possible. Mm -hmm. Tom Bradley, Mm -hmm. you know, who people say, well, he was conservative and he was a moderate. Tom Bradley was the first black mayor, but not the last mm-hmm. black mayor of Los Angeles. And I'm going to tell you this, as as important as Jesse Jackson is to our history of achieving political power, think about all those local elected officials. Think about the coattails that they had. Think about the foundation that they laid, mm-hmm. which you and I were talking about this at the beginning because I said I was on a flight coming here last night with Stacey Abrams. Yeah. You know, Stacey Abrams is another one of those people who laid the foundation and elected the first black senator from Georgia and the first Jewish yeah. senator from Both Georgia. Of them. Exactly. You know, that, that none of this happens in a vacuum. And and so I want to go back to, to Jesse. Jesse was considered a troublemaker mm-hmm. and a provocateur and Jesse Jackson paid his dues, yeah. and a whole lot of people uh, stand on his shoulders, yeah. and he has some very big shoulders. And Jesse said all the time, as you know, because for Jesse, everything is a rhyme. Up with hope, down with dope. Yeah. Put hope in your brains, not dope in your veins. From the outhouse to the White House, yeah. hands that pick cottonwood, not pick a president. He said all the time, I'm not a troublemaker, I'm a tree shaker. <laughs> I'm not a troublemaker. I'm a tree shaker. And with Parkinson's, he's still shaking more trees than some of us will ever shake in a lifetime. He is indeed. I was in Chicago not long ago and spent some time with him, as I always do when I'm there. So, again, the Parkinson's is is all over him. You can't can't help but see that Um, he uh, is having trouble these days. But his mind is still sharp. Mm -hmm. Reminded me of Ali uh, at Mm -hmm. the end. Ali's mind was still sharp. Jesse's mind is still sharp, even though Parkinson's is, is ravaging his body. So we'll celebrate more of Jesse Jackson uh, in our two uh, with Junior. Jesse Jackson Jr., former congressman, and James Zogby, a great pollster, and was on uh, Jesse's campaign team back uh, 40 years ago when he gave that grand speech in San Francisco. There was another great speech in San Francisco, too. You remember Mario Cuomo? You know, I city, don't remember the city, Mario the city on Cuomo. The hill. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Former governor of New York. He, at that same convention, I mean, Jesse killed it, but Mario yeah. Cuomo gave that speech um, about a city on the hill. Well, I just remember being on the floor because it was a mess down there on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You were a delegate from Atlanta, of course. So you grew up here. And uh, and I want to just mention right quick before you move forward, you mentioned Tom Bradley. And when I thought of you coming in studio today, I didn't just think of the mayor and you were growing up in this city. Of course, you know I work for Tom Bradley. That's how I got started. But I thought of your precious and your dear sister. Oh, thank you. Melanie. Yeah. Uh, uh, Michael Lobax's sister, Melanie, was a brilliant, brilliant attorney uh, in this city of Los Angeles. This program is right across the country, but obviously we're based in L.A. But Melanie, uh, a brilliant, brilliant legal mind and was a strong supporter of Tom Bradley and uh, served on a number of commissions. And I remember her well when I was much younger as, yeah. an, aide, as an aide running around City Hall. Well, I want to just say thank well, Melanie was a courageous uh, champion advocate and a tough adversary. And what people don't understand is that when 
Tom fired Daryl Gates, mm -hmm. the, the police chief, and we had a lot of police brutality in this town, mm -hmm. the person who fired him was Melanie Lomax. She was the head and of the she, <laughs> <laughs> And she was a tough sister and, yeah. uh, you know, um, left us too soon. Yep. You all recall Daryl Gates, of course, police chief. He was at the helm during the Rodney King beating mm -hmm. and all the riots, the uprisings that followed uh, now 30-plus years ago. Uh, but it was Michael Lomax's sister, Melanie, who was, in fact, the head of the police commission and the mayor made a decision he's got to go but the commission had to fire him yeah and it was melanie lomax who pulled the trigger yep and we all the better for it i'll leave that where we it, will we, leave it we'll, i'll leave it where it is uh, but a tribute to your sister to, uh, melanie um let me go back to uh the uncf which, again there are a number of things you've yeah. raised that I, that I want to unpack and i'm glad i got you for the hour here or what remains of it um you mentioned earlier that this money that comes from Lilly, this $100 million contribution mm -hmm. that Lilly gives to the UNCF, is going to be used to shore up HBCUs. Tell me more about that. Well, you know, we're going through a renaissance with HBCUs. When I went off to Morehouse in 1964 from Los Angeles, California, my classmates said, why would you go to Georgia to go to college? You could go to UCLA. You mm -hmm. could go to Berkeley. And, you know, somebody was looking out for me, and I went to Morehouse, and it made all the difference. I discovered something my family had known, black colleges are, are incredible. Mm -hmm. um, and they've really gone through a lot over this 60-year period. Uh, some of them have done very well. Spelman College is, you know, just number one, always ranked number one. It's the number one institution in terms of endowment per student. Howard University is going to probably be the first uh, historically black college or university to get an endowment of $1 billion. But think about it. There are 102 historically black colleges. You put all their endowments, that's their wealth. Mm -hmm. That's their cash wealth. And they got about $5 billion added up. Harvard University has a $50 billion endowment. So, you know, we talk a lot about we've got to build wealth in the black community. We've got to build it not just from getting a good job, but by savings and buying real estate and mm -hmm. having assets. We want businesses that are wealthy. But, you know, at the end of the day, we got to have our institutions wealthy, too. And our black colleges have got to grow their endowments. And so what UNCF is doing uh, over the next three years, we will, we will raise at least $370 million dollars that will ensure that the 37 private historically black colleges that we support every year mm -hmm. have $10 million extra in their endowments. And we will keep that $370 million pooled as one endowment. We will invest it, and it will grow. And they can never touch the principal, mm -hmm. but they will get resources from that. And our hope is, our expectation is that when people see what having wealth for an institution can do for its ability to to achieve its mission, that they're going to start investing mm -hmm. in endowments. Um, I got a minute here, and let me just let me just do that. I'll I'll, I'll set up where I want to go when we okay. come forward, and we'll get there um, when we come forward. There have been a number of stories. I've been in a number of conversations about this. It's nothing strange to you. There are a number of these HBCUs that are struggling, as yeah. you mentioned. I just had the president of Fisk on this program a few weeks ago. Um, and I've spoken at many of these colleges, mm -hmm. as you know, over the years. Um, many of them are in trouble. And there's been a suggestion that they ought to consolidate. Now, every school has its own history, its yeah. own legacy. And that's not an easy conversation to have. But is it better to have some of these smaller HBCUs that are going under consolidate and bring that history together, whatever that looks like, 
uh, and conjoin the names, whatever that looks like, and save the legacy or have these schools one by one fall off. I want to get your thought on that. I also want to get your thought when we come forward on Biden-Harris. You mentioned Kamala Harris earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, they are now starting to tout uh, all across the country what they have done for black folk yes. as they run for re-election. Yeah. And one of the things on their list is what they've done for HBCU. Yeah. That's on their list. I want to check with you. You're the expert here. Tell me whether or not that's the yeah. truth or whether or not I need to chin check them for lying yeah. about what they've done for HBCUs. A lot more to talk about with Michael Lomax, Dr. Michael Lomax, who's the president and CEO of the United Negro College Fund, now 80 years strong. You're listening to him and I'm glad about it on Tavis Smiling. Seeking the truth. Speaking the truth. This is the Tavis Smiley Show. Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. We were talking about Jesse Jackson earlier with our guest, Dr. Michael Lomax, who is the president and CEO of the United Negro College Fund, now celebrating 80 years of ensuring that our our babies uh, mm -hmm. get access to a high-quality education on great campuses all across this country. We were talking about Jesse earlier. We'll talk about Jesse again in the next hour with his son, Jesse Jackson Jr. and James Zogby as we celebrate uh, the 40th anniversary of Jesse's historic uh, speech at the DNC uh, coming up later this summer, this year in Chicago. It's going to be hot in Chicago. I'm told, like 1968 hot. Mm -hmm. We shall see. Um, but uh, we're going to talk about Jesse in our two. But I, I, I come back to that because... Somebody told me, I read once, and I assume this is true, that when you were just a kid, you actually met the guy that Jesse worked for? A guy named Martin Luther King Jr.? Oh, yes. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was saying, no, so, you know, my family owned a, a little newspaper here from 1940 to 1960, the Los Angeles Tribune. Mm -hmm. And my mother was what calls an armchair journalist. She wrote the paper, but she usually sat at home and got all the news and she wrote it up. Mm -hmm. But in 1956, when the bus boycott occurred, she said, I got to cover this story. And she went for a week to Alabama, and that's the mother of six, mm -hmm. and she covered it. Uh, spent a week, met Martin Luther King, met Rosa Parks, met Coretta, met Abernathy, uh, had dinner at the, the King home, and uh, the next year he came to Los Angeles. And stayed at the Watkins Hotel mm -hmm. on Adams Boulevard. On Adams Boulevard. We picked, and we picked him up and brought him over to the house for cake and ice cream and an interview with my mother. And six <laughs> children sitting on the floor watching her interviews. Stop it. Martin Luther King. Stop it. Stop and, it. And my grandmother <laughs> was, and, her, and the ladies in her book club gave a reception fundraiser for Dr. King at the Pacific Town Club mm -hmm. on Adams. So he, he and, and we have a letter that he wrote to my mother. He said, you know, you write about me different from anybody, <laughs> from anybody else. So no, we did meet him. And um, I will say one of the great honors of my life is I have known every generation of the King family. Mm -hmm. I knew uh, his parents. I knew all of his siblings. I served on the Fulton County Commission mm -hmm. with his son, Martin, mm -hmm. and I know his granddaughter. Granddaughter. His only so, granddaughter. His yeah. only granddaughter. Yeah. So that great family made extraordinary contributions to yeah. America and not through doing it yet. Yeah. No, I uh, and I, our thoughts and prayers are still with that family over the yeah. loss of Dexter recently, yeah. Dexter Scott King. 
just memorialized a week or two ago. Um, but I'm 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 through now. I, I could just stop the conversation. We're not going to do history. We're going to talk about the future. Yeah, yeah. I get, but still, man, I'm, <laughs> I'm stuck that you are a kid. You and Melody and your other siblings are sitting on the floor as Dr. King comes to your house for cake and ice cream. Yeah, and you know, I was so you know, I'll tell you something. When we picked, I I rode with my mother yeah. over to pick him up, and here's the, it's a cold winter morning. And he's standing out front with a fedora and a big coat on. And, you know, he was pretty cool dresser. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Smoking a cigarette, I have mm-hmm. to say. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, got, he got caught every now and then. He got caught every now and And he then. came yeah. over. And, uh, you know, he, the one thing that really impresses me in recollection is that he was a minister. Mm-hmm. And he did a lot of pastoral counseling. And he was good with kids. Mm-hmm. And he kept us quiet mm-hmm. while he talked with my mother. Mm-hmm. And he was just, uh, he was a rare human being. And so this is 1956. Yeah. 12 years later, I'm a senior at Morehouse, 1968. He's yeah. been assassinated. Mm. And uh, my job during that funeral was to take, that funeral week was to take people who, VIPs who came mm-hmm. over to the Spelman campus to pay their respects where Dr. King lay in state in an open casket. And I remember taking Ruby D and Ossie Davis in, mm. and you know, it was like, I was a full circle moment in my life. And uh, it's uh, my memory of him in that casket after giving his life for us. That's been my motivation for the next, uh, for the rest of my life. I, I have such regard, such high regard for Ossie Davis <clears throat> for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is um, he's the only person that spoke at both Malcolm and Martin's funeral. Mm-hmm. He did both. You got to be a bad man <laughs> to be friends with both. I mean, friends of that proximity, yes, that closeness to Malcolm and Martin to speak at both of their services. Yeah. That's but, you know, I think it also says that the way the outside world views the differences inside the black community, sure. we do we reconcile those in our lives every That's right. day. That's right. I was honored to uh, be asked by Ruby D. I spoke uh, Bill Clinton and I, Bill Clinton, Harry Belafonte, and, and yours truly eulogized Ozzy mm-hmm. at his service at Riverside Church. And and, and that's another had, giant we lost oh last yeah. year oh was yeah. Harry. We're losing him, man. We're losing him. We're losing him. Uh, that's why I'm glad you're still here doing your great well, no, work. Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not leaving anytime soon. Yeah, I, I hope don't not. think so. Just. I hope not. Um, a couple of things I mentioned I want to get to, just watching my time is getting yeah. away from me. Um, this, this, this notion that some of these HBCUs that are yeah. struggling ought to consolidate. Your thoughts? Well, we have had consolidation. Mm-hmm. I was the president of Dillard University in New Orleans. That was the consolidation of Strait University and New Orleans University. There's a school in Austin called Houston Tillotson. Mm-hmm. Houston College and Tillotson College. There's a very large HBCU in Atlanta called Clark Atlanta University. It's a consolidation. So we have done consolidations, and and we will perhaps. But one of the things that we're doing at UNCF is we're saying, you know, every one of those communities, whether it's Marshall, Texas, or Talladega, Alabama, or uh, some other – or Augusta, Georgia, where Payne College is – They've got an HBCU, and that HBCU may not be doing well financially, but it's an anchor. And so what we've decided to do at UNCF is we're going to raise money for them. Mm -hmm. We're going to help them be financially more successful. We're going to 
bring new business practices of shared services and other things together so that they can continue to be anchored in that community mm -hmm. and serving the people in that community. Because we need black colleges. We don't, we don't need to get rid of any black colleges. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the institutions we need to preserve and what we need to give them the resources yeah. to have the impact. Tell me uh, quickly here whether or not Biden and Harris are being truthful when they brag about all they've done for HBCU. Well, I'm going to tell you this, that okay. during COVID, when I thought black colleges would go out of business, uh, the federal government provided over $8 billion in support. Mm -hmm. And that was done by two elements of the federal government. One was the Congressional Black Caucus. Without them, nothing would have happened. Mm -hmm. And during the Biden administration, uh, they have worked actively with the Congressional Black Caucus to provide tremendous support. You know, uh, over the last four years, the United Negro College Fund has raised over $1 billion in that four-year period. We would have raised maybe $400 million in an earlier time. Uh, so the philanthropic community has given. But I'm going to tell you the big difference that the Biden administration has made. One of them is around student loan debt. Now, they can talk all this junk they mm -hmm. want, but they're wiping out student loan debt. They didn't get the, 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 the Supreme Court didn't give them the support they needed. They keep just doing it administratively, and millions of borrowers have had their debt eliminated mm -hmm. or reduced or the terms of their repayment uh, improved. So I'm going to tell you people, people cannot take the, them for granted. They're yeah. doing their job, and... Uh, I believe that you're going to see him have another wave of uh, wiping out of loans, yeah. and, and they're going to make a big difference. It doesn't hurt when the uh, vice president is an HBCU grad. It doesn't hurt. and, and you know, <laughs> All right, let's they, shout out the Bison, the they, Bison of Howard. They, yeah. they, you know, I'm, I'm, you know yeah. it, there are some other schools, but yeah. Howard has been in, you know, they've been in everybody's sights, yeah. and they've been doing a great job, and the vice president, uh, you know, is is a proud graduate of Howard. When we come forward in our dialogue with Dr. Michael Lomax, President and CEO of the United Negro College Fund, now celebrating its 80th anniversary, he is in town uh, tonight for a major appearance at the Skirball Center. Um, it is a Jewish center called Skirball here in Los Angeles. He's making a major presentation there tonight around the notion of blacks and Jews and our mm -hmm. uh, our uh, relationship down through the years. I will be making a presentation at this same Skirball Center tomorrow night. So they got Michael Lomax tonight uh, and uh, Tavis Smiley tomorrow night. We'll talk about what he's going to talk about tonight, mm -hmm. today, when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Can you dig it? Come on! Smart talk for curious people just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Michael Lomax, tell me about uh, what you're doing at Skirball this evening here in L.A. Well, I, it's a discussion about what I didn't realize is a cottage industry in higher education, and that's to write about black-Jewish relations. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of it focuses on... Um, the civil rights movement and the black power movement. And there will be some people who will talk about that. I'm going to talk about the relationship between black philanthropists and historically black colleges, which really predates all of these and has been a continuous arc of activity. And it begins with Julius Rosenwald, who was the CEO at Sears, who teamed up with Booker T. Washington in 1912 to start building rural schools in the deep South. Mm. And together, uh, they initiated a program that built 
5,000 one-room schoolhouses across the South between 1912 and 1935 when Rosenwald died. And, of course, uh, Washington died in 1915. Built 5,000 schoolhouses and educated over 500,000 black kids in that period and took black folks from rural illiteracy mm-hmm. to literacy between the two wars. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there there were no high schools in the South. There were no public schools in the rural South. Sharecroppers' children had to work 12 months out of the year. But when these schools got built, they could go to school and they could learn to read and write. And I will tell you, uh, that changed American educational history. And ever since Rosenwald did that, Jewish philanthropists, Jewish philanthropists have been investing in education. And you think about uh, Walter Annenberg gave $50 million sure. to UNCF. Mm-hmm. You think about the folks who have been building uh, school charter schools all across the country, Bloomberg, uh, the Fishers. So that's a story of commitment to black education, which is important to tell, and I'm going to tell it tonight. Skirball is going to be blessed this evening to hear from the president and CEO of the UNCF, Dr. Michael Lomax. Again, I'll be talking tomorrow night on a different subject. About well, black. what are you going to talk about? I don't know. I ain't got that far yet. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't had time to think about it yet. Uh, it's really about civil rights. It's blacks and Jews and civil rights. I'm, I, I suspect I'll talk about Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Yeah. And King and a few other things. But you, if you, together. I just yeah. will tell you, if you're sure. going to talk about Jesse, you got, who's Zogby? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. That's, it's a connection. It's a yeah. strong connection. Thank you for the, I like that. Yes. I mean, weave that in. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you I'm something. Take, I'm taking notes on my well, well, that's just, I, one thing I would say to you is they're going to tell yeah. me that, you know, blacks and Jews have been fighting. Well, cousins fight. Yeah, indeed. But I'm going to tell you, when the neo-Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan come looking, mm-hmm. they're not going to come for one or the other. They're coming that's for right. both of us. So we better be there together. On that note, when we come forward <laughs> in our remaining moments with Michael Lomax, Dr. Michael Lomax, we've been friends so long, I call him Michael. He is Dr. Michael Lomax. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court just rejected hearing another case on affirmative action. I'll tell you what that's about uh, in light of the fact they've already wiped it out in higher education and get Michael Lomax's thoughts on what that reality means for black students in the years to come. We'll close on that note with Dr. Michael Lomax on Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. My mom's. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. So there's breaking news I mentioned earlier um, uh, to our friend Dr. Michael Lomax, who's in the studio with us for four more minutes. The U.S. Supreme Court uh, just uh, moments ago, hours ago, not even hours now, declined a chance to further restrict efforts to promote diversity in education, turning away an appeal by a coalition of parents and students who argued that an elite Virginia public school's revised admissions policy racially discriminates against Asian Americans. So. This case um, is out of Thomas Jefferson High School in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, they wanted the Supreme Court to take this case to further restrict affirmative action. The Supreme Court said no. Of course, two people delented, mm-hmm. uh, dissented rather. They said no. We want to hear this case. Mm-hmm. They dissented. One of them was Samuel Alito. Care to guess who the other one was, Michael Lomax? Uh, was it, <laughs> his name Thomas? Yeah. <laughs> Clarence Thomas said, no, bring that case. I mean, Alito and Thomas dissented. They wanted another bite at the apple to further do damage to affirmative action. But the court writ large turned the case away. It is what it is. In the three minutes I have left, what is your sense of how this assault, as I see it, attacked, however one looks at it, certainly wiping out affirmative action in higher education, given your work at UNCF, how does that impact black and brown students? Well, first of all, it's not going to uh, affect black historically black colleges because mm-hmm. these institutions do not make race-based decisions. Right. They just, uh, if you apply, 
and you're qualified, you get to go. Yeah. Uh, I thought where we were perhaps going to see some assault was on race-based scholarship programs. And so there are uh, at UNCF. It's coming. It's coming. Well, you don't think y- so? Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah. this this may say that they think they've opined enough on this. But if they go after scholarships for black students, then they're going to have to go after the Hispanic Scholarship Fund. They're going to have to go after the Asian Pacific Islander and, Scholarship Fund and, and the uh, every other scholarship. That, 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 I'm not convinced that would stop them. Well. I think that uh, they're going to have a lot more people to sue. Yeah. And they can't just do black folks mm-hmm. and not have that speak to all Catholics, yeah. Jews. They can't, you know. So I, I don't know whether that would be. Uh, I think the, the Supreme Court is a political body. And I think that they probably feel like they stirred up enough of a hornet's nest and they may not want any more on this from, subject from your mouth to god's ears well but i'm that prayerful is, <clears throat> yeah but know. that that ain't what alito and thomas wanted but yeah. I, I digress on that in the minute i have left um 80 years of the uncf uh, going strong to your point a uh, billion dollars raised in what the last five years you yes. said so you guys you guys are you guys are, are, are doing your thing and you've been there now 20 what 20 20 years 20 years so congratulations to Thank you. you they've been blessed to have you for two decades yeah. and you've made this thing uh, even bigger than it was before you arrived um what's what's the future of UNC? well i have an aspirational goal okay. and i told you about a 370 million dollar endowment i want it really to be a one billion dollar endowment so i'm gonna have to hustle over the mm. next three years but i believe that if uh we build wealth for our institutions no one can take that away mm. and so i think that uh just like you got to have money in the bank just like you got to have assets institutions have to have it in. and if that story gets told we're going to build a billion-dollar endowment. And that is what I think black America has to focus on now more than anything. We've had great individual success, but institutional success is something very different. And the older I get, the more I see things the way you see things. Yeah. It can't just be about your individual success. I've been blessed in a variety of ways, but it's about building institutions, and you've done that remarkably well. Well, I'm just going to ask some of those black billionaires to make a contribution to college fund. Because a mind is a terrible thing to waste. waste. There you go. I think you just did. That, that slogan still works. Uh, Dr. Michael Lomax, president and CEO of the United Negro College Fund, now celebrating 80 years here in L.A. tonight, appearing at the Skirball Center. I don't know if you can get in, but it's going to be a great talk tonight, uh, and we thank Skirball for inviting him into town, which gave me the opportunity to get him in studio. Dr. Lomax, I love you. Ain't nothing you can do about it. Good to see you, my friend. Thank you. We'll talk about Jesse Jackson 40 years later in the next hour of Tavis Smiley.